Act One of the Second Part of King Henry the Fourth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Part of Henry the Fourth by William Shakespeare. Induction. Scene: England. Warkworth, before Northumberland's castle. Enter rumour, painted full of tongues. Open your ears! For which of you will stop the vent of hearing when loud rumour speaks? I, from the Orient to the drooping West, making the wind my post-horse, still unfold the acts commenced on this ball of earth. Upon my tongue's continual slanders ride, the which in every language I pronounce, stuffing the ears of men with false reports. I speak of peace, while covert enmity under the smile of safety wounds the world. And who but rumour, who but only I, make fearful musters and prepared defence, whilst the big year, swollen with some other grief, is thought with child by the stern tyrant war in no such matter? Rumour is a pipe blown by surmises, jealousies, conjectures, and if so easy, and so plain a stop that the blunt monster with uncounted heads, the still discordant wavering multitude, can play upon it. But what need I thus my well-known body to anatomize among my household? Why is rumour here? I run before King Harry's victory, who, in a bloody field by Shrewsbury, hath beaten down young Hotspur and his troops, quenching the flame of bold rebellion even with the rebels' blood. But what mean I to speak so true at first? <laughs> My office is to noise abroad that Harry Monmouth fell under the wrath of noble Hotspur's sword, and that the king before the Douglas rage stooped his anointed head as low as death. This have I rumoured through the peasant towns between that royal field of Shrewsbury and this worm-eaten hold of ragged stone, where Hotspur's father, old Northumberland, lies crafty sick. The posts come tiring on, and not a man of them brings other news than they have learnt of me. <laughs> From rumours' tongues they bring smooth comforts, false, worse than true wrongs. <laughs> Exit. Scene one. Warkworth, before Northumberland's castle. Enter Lord Bardolph. Who keeps the gate here? Ho! The porter opens the gate. Where is the earl? What shall I say you are? Tell thou the earl that the Lord Bardolph doth attend him here. His lordship is walked forth into the orchard. Please it, your honour, knock but at the gate, and he himself will answer. Enter Northumberland. Here comes the earl. Exit porter. What news, Lord Bardolph? Every minute now should be the father of some stratagem. The times are wild. Contention like a horse, full of high feeding, madly hath broke loose and bears down all before him. Noble earl, I bring you certain news from Shrewsbury. Good in God will. As good as heart can wish. The king is almost wounded to the death, and in the fortune of my lord your son... Prince Harry slain outright, and both the blunts killed by the hand of Douglas. Young Prince John and Westmoreland and Stafford fled the field, and Harry Monmouth's brawn, the Hulk Sir John, is prisoner to your son. 
Oh, such a day, so fought, so followed, and so fairly won, came not till now to dignify the times since Caesar's fortunes. How is this derived? Saw you the field? Came you from Shrewsbury? I spake with one, my lord, that came from thence, a gentleman, well-bred and of good name, that freely rendered me these news for true. Enter Travers. Here comes my servant, Travers, whom I sent on Tuesday last to listen after news. My lord, I overrode him on the way, and he is furnished with no certainties more than he haply may retail from me. Now, Travers, what good tidings comes with you? My lord, Sir John Umfrevel turned me back with joyful tidings, and, being better horsed, outrode me. After him came spurring hard a gentleman, almost forspent with speed, that stopped by me to breathe his bloodied horse. He asked the way to Chester, and of him I did demand one news from Shrewsbury. He told me that rebellion had bad luck, and that young Harry Percy's spur was cold. With that he gave his able horse the head, and, bending forward, struck his armoured heels against the panting sides of his poor jade up to the rowel head, and starting so he seemed in running to devour the way, staying no longer question. Ha! Huh. Again? Said he young Harry Percy's spur was cold? Of hot spur, cold spur? That rebellion hath met ill luck? My lord, I'll tell you what. If my young lord your son have not the day, upon mine honour, for a silken point I'll give my barony. Never talk of it. Why should that gentleman that rode by Travers give then such instances of loss? Who, he? He was some hilding fellow that had stolen the horse he rode on, and upon my life spoke at a venture. Look, here comes more news. Enter Morton. Yea, this man's brow, like to a title-leaf, foretells the nature of a tragic volume. So looks the strand whereon the imperious flood hath left a witnessed usurpation. Say, Morton, didst thou come from Shrewsbury? <sighs> I ran from Shrewsbury, my noble lord, where hateful death puts on his ugliest mask to fright our party. How doth my son and brother, thou tremblest, and the whiteness in thy cheek is apter than thy tongue to tell thy errand. Even such a man, so faint, so spiritless, so dull, so dread in look, so woe-begone, drew Priam's curtain in the dead of night, and would have told him half his Troy was burnt. But Priam found the fire ere he his tongue, and I, my Percy's death, ere thou reportst it. This thou wouldst say, your son did thus and thus, your brother thus, so fought the noble Douglas, stopping my greedy ear with their bold deeds. But in the end, to stop my ear indeed, thou hast a sigh to blow away this praise, ending with brother, son, and all are dead. Douglas is living, and your brother yet. But for my lord your son... Why, he is dead. See what a ready tongue suspicion hath? He that but fears the thing he would not know, hath by instinct knowledge from others' eyes, that what he feared is chanced. Yet speak, Morton, tell thou an earl his divination lies, and I will take it as a sweet disgrace, and make thee rich for doing me such wrong. You are too great to be by me gainsaid. Your spirit is too true, your fears too certain. Yet for all this, say not that Percy's dead. 
I see a strange confession in thine eye. Thou shakest thy head and holdst it in fear or sin to speak a truth. If he be slain, say so. The tongue offends not that reports his death, and he doth sin that doth belie the dead, not he which says the dead is not alive. Yet the first bringer of unwelcome news hath but a losing office, and his tongue sounds ever after as a sullen bell, remembered tolling a departing friend. I cannot think, my lord, your son is dead. I'm sorry I should force you to believe that which I would to God I had not seen. But these mine eyes saw him in bloody state, rendering faint quittance, wearied and outbreathed, to Harry Monmouth, whose swift wrath beat down the never-daunted Percy to the earth, from whence with life he never more sprang up. In few, his death, whose spirit lent a fire even to the dullest peasant in his camp, being bruited once, took fire and heat away from the best-tempered courage in his troops. For from his metal was his party steeled, which once in him abated, and the rest turned on themselves like dull and heavy lead. And as the thing that's heavy in itself upon enforcement flies with greatest speed, so did our men, heavy in Hotspur's loss, lend to this weight such lightness with their fear that arrows fled not swifter toward their aim than did our soldiers, aiming at their safety, fly from the field. Then was that noble Worcester soon taken prisoner, and that furious Scot, the bloody Douglas, whose well-labouring sword had three times slain the appearance of the king, gan veil his stomach and did grace the shame of those that turned their backs and in his flight, stumbling in fear, was took. The sum of all is that the king hath won, and hath sent out a speedy power to encounter you, my lord, under the conduct of young Lancaster and Westmoreland. This is the news at full. For this I shall have time enough to mourn. In poison there is physic, and these news having been well that would have made me sick, being sick have in some measure made me well. And as the wretch whose fever-weakened joints like strengthless hinges buckle under life, impatient of his fit, breaks like a fire out of his keeper's arms, even so my limbs, weakened with grief, being now enraged with grief, are thrice themselves. Hence, therefore, thou nice crutch, a scaly gauntlet now with joints of steel must glove this hand, and hence, thou sickly quaff, thou art a guard too wanton for the head, which princes, fleshed with conquest, aim to hit. Now bind my brows with iron, and approach the raggedest hour that time and spite dare bring to frown upon the enraged Northumberland. Let heaven kiss earth. Now let not nature's hand keep the wild flood confined. Let order die, and let this world no longer be a stage to feed contention in a lingering act. But let one spirit of the firstborn, Cain, reign in all bosoms, that each heart being set on bloody courses, the rude scene may end, and darkness be the barrier of the dead. This strained passion doth you wrong, my lord. 
sweet earl, divorce not wisdom from your honour. The lives of all your loving complices lean on your health, the which, if you give o'er to stormy passion, must perforce decay. You cast the event of war, my noble lord, and summed the account of chance before you said, let us make head. It was your pre-surmise that in the dole of blows your son might drop. You knew he walked o'er perils on an edge, more likely to fall in than to get o'er. You were advised his flesh was capable of wounds and scars, and that his forward spirit would lift him where most trade of danger ranged. Yet did you say, Go forth! And none of this, though strongly apprehended, could restrain the stiff-born action. What have then befallen, or what have this bold enterprise brought forth, more than that being which was like to be? We all that are engaged to this loss knew that we ventured on such dangerous seas that if we wrought out life t'was ten to one, and yet we ventured, for the gain proposed choked the respect of likely peril feared. And since we are o'erset, venture again. Come, we will put forth body and goods." "'Tis more than time. And, my most noble lord, I hear for certain, and dare speak the truth, the gentle Archbishop of York is up with well-appointed powers. He is a man who with a double surety binds his followers. My lord your son had only but the corpse, but shadows and the shows of men to fight, for that same word, rebellion, did divide the action of their bodies from their souls. And they did fight with queasiness, constrained as men drink potions, that their weapons only seemed on our side, but for their spirits and souls. This word rebellion, it had froze them up, as fish are in a pond. But now the bishop turns insurrection to religion. Suppose sincere and holy in his thoughts, he's followed both with body and with mind, and doth enlarge his rising with the blood of fair King Richard scraped from pomfret stones, derives from heaven his quarrel and his cause, tells them he doth bestride a bleeding land gasping for life under great bolling brook, and more and less do flock to follow him. I knew of this before. But to speak truth, this present grief hath wiped it from my mind. Go in with me, and counsel every man the aptest way for safety and revenge. Get posts and letters, and make friends with speed, never so few, and never yet more need. Exeunt. Scene 2. London. A street. Enter Sir John Falstaff with his page bearing his sword and buckler. Sirrah, you giant! What says the doctor to my water? He said, sir, the water itself was a good healthy water. But for the party that owed it, he might have more diseases than he knew for. Men of all sorts take a pride to gird at me. The brain of this foolish compounded clay man is not able to invent anything that intends to laughter more than I invent or is invented on me. I am not only witty in myself, but the cause that wit is in other men. I do here walk before thee like a sow that hath overwhelmed all her litter but one. 
if the prince put thee into my service for any other reason than to set me off, why then I have no judgment. Thou whoreson mandrake, thou art fitter to be worn in my cap than to wait at my heels. I was never manned with an agate till now. But I will unset you neither in gold nor silver, but in vile apparel, and send you back again to your master, for a jewel— the juvenile, the prince, your master, whose chin is not yet fledge. I will sooner have a beard grow in the palm of my hand than he shall get one off his cheek, and yet he will not stick to say his face is a face royal. God may finish it when he will. Tis not a hair amiss yet. He may keep it still at a face royal, for a barber shall never earn sixpence out of it. "'and yet he'll be crowing as if he had writ man "'ever since his father was a bachelor. "'He may keep his own grace, "'but he's almost out of mine, I can assure him. "'What said Master Domelton about the satin "'for my short cloak and my slops?' "'He said, sir, you should procure him better assurance than Bardolph. "'He would not take his band and yours. "'He liked not the security.' "'Let him be damned, like the glutton.' Pray God his tongue be hotter, or her son Achitophel, a rascal, yea, forsooth, knave, to bear a gentleman in hand, and then stand upon security. The whoreson smooth-pates do now wear nothing but high shoes, and bunches of keys at their girdles, and if a man is through with them in honest taking up, then they must stand upon security.' I had as lief they would put ratsbane in my mouth as offer to stop it with security. I looked as should have set me two and twenty yards of satin, as I am a true knight, and he sends me security. Well, he may sleep in security, for he hath the horn of abundance, and the lightness of his wife shines through it, and yet cannot he see, though we have his own lantern to light him. Where's Bardolph? He's gone into Smithfield to buy your worship horse. I bought him in Paul's, and he'll buy me a horse in Smithfield. And I could get me but a wife in the stews. I were manned, horsed, and wived. Enter the Lord Chief Justice and Servant. Sir, here comes the nobleman that committed the prince for striking him about Bardolph. Wait close. I will not see him. What's he that goes there? Falstaff, and please your lordship. He that was in the question for the robbery? He, my lord, but he has since done good service at Shrewsbury, and, as I hear, is now going with some charge to the Lord John of Lancaster. What? To Jock? Call him back again. Sir John Falstaff. Boy, tell him I am deaf. You must speak louder. My master is deaf. I am sure he is to the hearing of anything good. Go pluck him by the elbow. I must speak with him. Sir John! What? A young knave and begging? Is there not wars? Is there not employment? Doth not the king lack subjects? Do not the rebels need soldiers? And though it be a shame to be on any side but one, it is worse shame to beg than to be on the worst side. Were it worse than the name of rebellion can tell how to make it. You mistake me, sir. Why, sir, did I say you were an honest man? 
setting my knighthood and my soldiership aside, I had lied in my throat if I had said so. I pray you, sir, then set your knighthood and your soldiership aside, and give me leave to tell you, you in your throat, if you say that I am any other than an honest man. I give thee leave to tell me so. I lay aside that which grows to me. If thou gettest any leave of me, hang me. If thou takest leave, thou wert better be hanged. You hunt counter, hence avaunt. Sir, my lord would speak with you. Sir John Falstaff, a word with you. My good lord, God give your lordship good time of day. I am glad to see your lordship abroad. I heard say your lordship was sick. I hope your lordship goes abroad by advice. Your lordship, though not clean past your youth, hath yet some smack of age in you, some relish of the saltness of time, and I most humbly beseech your lordship to have a reverent care of your health. Sir John, I send for you before your expedition to Shrewsbury. And please, your lordship, I hear his majesty is returned with some discomfort from Wales. I talk not of his majesty. You would not come when I sent for you. And I hear, moreover, his highness is fallen into this same horse and apoplexy. Well, God mend him. I pray you let me speak with you. This apoplexy, as I take it, is a kind of lethargy, and please your lordship, a kind of sleeping in the blood, a wholesome tingling. What tell you me of it? Be it as it is. It hath it original from much grief, from study, and perturbation of the brain. I have read the cause of his effects in Galen. It is a kind of deafness. I think you are fallen into the disease. "'for you hear not what I say to you.' "'Very well, my lord, very well. "'Rather, and please you, "'it is the disease of not listening, "'the malady of not marking, "'that I am troubled with all.' "'To punish you by the heels "'would amend the attention of your heirs, "'and I care not if I do become your physician.' "'I am as poor as Job, my lord, "'but not so patient.' Your lordship may minister the potion of imprisonment to me in respect of poverty, but how I should be your patient to follow your prescriptions, otherwise may make some dram of a scruple, or indeed a scruple itself. I sent for you when there were matters against you for your life, to come speak with me. As I was then advised by my learned counsel in the laws of this land service, I did not come. Well, the truth is, Sir John, you live in great infamy. He that buckles himself in my belt cannot live in less. Your means are very slender, and your waste is great. I would it were otherwise. I would my means were greater, and my waste slenderer. You have misled the youthful prince. The young prince hath misled me. I am the fellow with the great belly, and he my dog. Well, I am loath to gall a new-healed wound. Your day's service at Shrewsbury hath a little gilded over your night's exploit on Gladshill. You may thank the unique time for your quiet o'er-esposting that action. Uh, my lord— But since all is well, keep it so. Wake not a sleeping wolf. To wake a wolf is as bad as smell a fox. 
What you are as a candle, the better part burnt out. A wassail candle, my lord, all tallow. If I did say of wax, my growth would approve the truth. There is not a white hair in your face, but should have his effect of gravity. His effect of gravy, gravy. You follow the young prince up and down like his ill angel. Not so, my lord. Your ill angel is light, but hope he that looks upon me will take me without weighing. And yet, in some respects, I grant I cannot go. I cannot tell. The virtue is of so little regard in these costermongers' times that true valour is turned barad. Pregnancy is made a tapster, and his quick wit wasted in giving reckonings. All the other gifts appurtenant to man, as the malice of this age shapes them, are not worth a gooseberry. You that are old, consider not the capacities of us that are young. You do measure the heat of our livers with the bitterness of your galls, and we that are in the vayward of our youth must confess our wags too. Do you set down your name in the scroll of youth that are written down old with all the characters of age? Have you not a moist eye, a dry hand, a yellow cheek, a white beard, a decreasing leg, and increasing belly? Is not your voice broken, your wind short, your chin double, your wit single, and every part about you blasted with antiquity? And will you yet call yourself young? Fie, fie, Sir John! My lord, I was born about three of the clock in the afternoon, with a white head and something around belly. For my voice, I have lost it with hallooing and singing of anthems. To approve my youth further, I will not. The truth is, I am only old in judgment and understanding, and he that will caper with me for a thousand marks, let him lend me the money, and have at him. For the box of the ear that the prince gave you, he gave it like a rude prince, and you took it like a sensible lord. I have checked him for it, and the young lion repents. Mary not in ashes and sackcloth, but in new silk and old sack. Well, God send the prince a better companion. God send the companion a better prince. I cannot rid my hands of him. Well, the king has served you. I hear you are going with Lord John of Lancaster against the archbishop and the earl of Northumberland. Yea, I thank your pretty sweet wit for it. But look, you pray, all you that kiss my lady peace at home, that our armies join not in a hot day. For, by the Lord, I take but two shirts out with me, and I mean not to sweat extraordinarily, if it be a hot day, and I brandish anything but a bottle. I would I might never spit white again. There is not a dangerous action can peep out his head, but I am thrust upon it. Well, I cannot last ever." But it was always yet the trick of our English nation, if they have a good thing, to make it too common. If he will need say, I am an old man. You should give me rest. I would to God my name were not so terrible to the enemy as it is. I were better to be eaten to death with a rust than to be scoured to nothing with perpetual motion. Well, be honest, be honest, and God bless your expedition.
"'Will your lordship lend me a thousand pounds to furnish me forth?' "'Not a penny, not a penny. You are too impatient to bear crosses. Fare you well. Commend me to my cousin Westmoreland.' Exit Chief Justice and Servant. "'If I do, fill up me with a three-man beetle. A man can no more separate age and covetousness than it can part young limbs and lechery. But the gout galls the one, and the pox pinches the other. And so both the degrees prevent my curses. "'Boy!' "'Sir?' "'What money is in my purse?' Seven groats and tuppence.' I can get no remedy against this consumption of the purse. Borrowing only lingers and lingers it out, but the disease is incurable. Go bear this letter to my lord of Lancaster, this to the prince, this to the earl of Westmoreland, and this to old mistress Ursula, whom I have weakly sworn to marry since I perceived the first white hair of my chin. About it you know where to find me. Exit page. A pox of this gout, nor a gout of this pox, for the one or the other plays the rogue with my great toe. Tis no matter if I do halt. I have the wars for my colour, and my pension shall seem the more reasonable. A good wit will make use of anything. I will turn diseases to commodity. Exit. Scene three. York, the Archbishop's Palace. Enter the Archbishop, Thomas Mowbray, the Earl Marshal, Lord Hastings, and Lord Bardolph. Thus have you heard our cause and known our means, and, my most noble friends, I pray you all, speak plainly your opinions of our hopes. And first, Lord Marshal, what say you to it? I will allow the occasion of our arms but gladly would be better satisfied how in our means we should advance ourselves to look with forehead bold and big enough upon the power and puissance of the king. Our present musters grow upon the file to five and twenty thousand men of choice, and our supplies live largely in the hope of great Northumberland, whose bosom burns with an incensed fire of injuries. The question, then, Lord Hastings, standeth thus, whether our present five and twenty thousand may hold up head without Northumberland. With him we may. Yea, Mary, there's the point. But if without him we be thought too feeble, my judgment is we should not step too far till we had his assistance by the hand. For, in a theme so bloody-faced as this, conjecture, expectation, and surmise of aids incertain should not be admitted. "'Tis very true, Lord Bardolph, for indeed it was young Hotspur's case at Shrewsbury. "'It was, my lord, who lined himself with hope, eating the air and promise of supply, flattering himself in project of a power much smaller than the smallest of his thoughts, and so, with great imagination proper to madmen, led his powers to death, and, winking, leapt into destruction.' "'But, by your leave, it never yet did hurt to lay down likelihoods and forms of hope.' Yes, if this present quality of war, indeed the instant action a cause on foot, lives so in hope, as in an early spring we see the appearing buds, which, to prove fruit, hope gives not so much warrant, as despair that frosts will bite them, when we mean to build, 
we first survey the plot, then draw the model, and when we see the figure of the house, then we must rate the cost of the erection, which, if we find out Way's ability, what do we do then but draw anew the model in fewer offices, or at least desist to build at all? Much more, in this great work, which is almost to pluck a kingdom down and set another up, should we survey the plot of situation and the model, consent upon a sure foundation, question surveyors, know our own estate, how able such a work to undergo, to weigh against his opposite, or else we fortify in paper and in figures, using the names of men instead of men, like one that draws the model of a house beyond his power to build it, who, half through, gives o'er, and leaves his part-created cost a naked subject to the weeping clouds and waste for churlish winter's tyranny. Grant that our hopes, yet likely of fair birth, should be still born, and that we now possess the utmost man of expectation, I think we are a body strong enough, even as we are, to equal with the king. What is the king but five and twenty thousand? To us no more, nay, not so much, Lord Bardolph, for his divisions, as the times do brawl, are in three heads, one power against the French, and one against Glendower, perforce a third must take up us, so is the unfirm king, in three divided, and his coffers sound with hollow poverty and emptiness. That he should draw his several strengths together, and come against us in full puissance, need not be dreaded. If he should do so, he leaves his back unarmed, the French and Welsh baying him at the heels. Never fear that. Who is it like should lead his forces hither? The Duke of Lancaster and Westmoreland, against the Welsh himself, and Harry Monmouth. But who is substituted against the French, I have no certain notice. Let us on, and publish the occasion of our arms. The Commonwealth is sick of their own choice. Their over-greedy love hath surfeited, and habitation, giddy and unsure, hath he that buildeth on the vulgar heart. O thou, fond many, with what loud applause didst thou beat heaven with blessing Bolingbroke, before he was what thou wouldst have him be? And being now trimmed in thine own desires, thou beastly feeder, art so full of him, that thou provokest thyself to cast him up. So, so, thou common dog, didst thou disgorge thy glutton bosom of the royal Richard, and now thou wouldst eat thy dead vomit up, and howl'st to find it. Who, what trust is in these times? They that when Richard lived would have him die, are now become enamoured on his grave. Thou that threwest dust upon his goodly head, when through proud London he came sighing on after the admired heels of Bolingbroke, criest now, O earth, yield us that king again, and take thou this. O thoughts of men accursed, past and to come seems best, things present worst. Shall we go draw our numbers and set on? We are time subjects, and time bids be gone. Exeunt. End of Act One.